I was almost outside of my body and I was at peace. And it was the first time I ever experienced that, ever. And I was like, if this is possible, like what else is possible? Welcome to the I Did Not Sign Up For This podcast, a bi-weekly show highlighting the incredible stories of everyday people. No topic is off limits. Join me as we explore the lives and experiences of guests through thought-provoking, unscripted conversations. And if you enjoy this show and would like to support this podcast, consider joining my Patreon. You'll gain instant access to over 70 exclusive bonus episodes, entries into giveaways, a discount on merch, and more. Your support allows me to continue bringing you these important stories. So head over to patreon.com slash I did not sign up for this and become part of the community. I'm your host, Carling, a Canadian queer identifying 30 something year old providing a platform for the stories that need to be heard. Hello, Charlie. Hey, <laughs> how are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? Good. Well, I'm super excited to talk to you. I've had you're the third per fourth person I've had that I met through keynote queers it's been so great kind of getting to extend how I'm getting to know the people that I went through that program with yeah that's really wonderful when you first extended the invitation I know I had said to you like I, I definitely want to I just don't know what my topic is and then I work with Elena Joy in other capacities and when her episode came out and I was listening I was like oh how things change the brain like generational <laughs> trauma got it I got a I did not sign up for this topic <laughs> yeah yeah and I think that's so I love the I love the topic of generational trauma because I it feels like this our generation is really unpacking it and calling it for what it is instead of it feels like maybe our parents or grandparents either didn't know about it, didn't acknowledge it, or I don't, I don't know. Absolutely. I think it's one of those topics that the expansion of social media and the internet and being able to connect with other people and see patterns, you know, it's getting to the point where it's like, maybe there's a name for this. Like maybe this is preventable or, you know, something we can work on. <laughs> the internet is a wild place, but it is, I think, at least brought some good like this. So I would love it if you could introduce yourself, say who you are, where you're from, what do you do? And then we'll find out where your story starts. Absolutely. So I mean, I'm Charlie. I usually just go by my first name, actually, and my pronouns are they, them. I am in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which for like 50% of the people that I talk to, they're like, oh, Amish country. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And they're yeah. like, oh, do you have like a horse and buggy? I'm like, you really think everyone in the greater like county of Lancaster were all Amish secretly. And I, I'm a clarity coach. First and foremost, I also am a meditation teacher. So those are kind of my two primary roles. And then I do lots of different things for people. I've done website design. I do marketing. I do social media stuff. I do event bartending. I'm a nanny. Like I just love to explore lots of different things. And so it's great because being a clarity coach and a meditation teacher actually always feeds into all of those other things in some capacity as well. You know, I might be working with someone on their marketing and then they're like, I have this, you know, imposter syndrome and we end up talking and they're like, oh, wait, I forgot you were a coach. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. And what does a clarity coach do? I've, I don't know that I've ever really heard of that. Yeah. So I always like to say it's kind of cousins with a life coach in the sense that it's like whatever you want to figure out in your life, I can help you. And that can be personal. It can be professional. Uh, almost every time someone comes to me 
with a problem that they think that they have. And it's really, it's like therapy, right? It's the surface level, you know, issue that they, that brings them in. And then we start talking and they realize that there's so much more underneath that. And especially as entrepreneurs, you know, our personal development work is the foundation of being an entrepreneur. And so you cannot go anywhere without bringing yourself into your business and as an employee. So it kind of ends up being, how can I help you find clarity on whatever you need? And often, sometimes they don't even know that. So yeah, I think a lot of people need that. I often sort of like internalize things as I'm deciding. And then there's a point where I just need to spew it out and talk it out with as many people as I can, because my brain's like sick of ruminating over it and I need it to be like out in the universe right there's so much clarity to come from verbal processing you know and Mm -hmm. having other people be as a mirror like when I was a lot younger I used to be super influenced if someone said something I immediately would like ascribe to that belief you know (laughs) I was like that makes sense that's who I am you know and it was very much like being naive and people pleasing too but as I got older, it was like, I do need to verbally process, but not because I need other people to tell me. I just need to be able to talk about it and get their feedback so that I am clear on how I feel about it. And a lot right. of people just need that. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm interested to hear. So we talked a little bit about generational trauma. Mm-hmm. And so I would love to find out where your story starts and then weave it into how it relates to how you got where you are today. Absolutely. Yeah. My story. Oh gosh. That's always like a loaded question. Where does it start? Well, when two humans like each other. No. (laughs) The earliest memories I have are about four years old and I have good and bad memories from that point. And I really have trauma that extended from that point on. And so about three decades worth. I was sexually abused by a friend of the family from that age. And then when I was 13, I was kicked out and I lived on the streets. I lived in um, a shelter. I found out that I was half adopted. I ended up becoming sex trafficked <laughs> along oh the way. God. And so by the time I was not even 18, I had lived in 20 different places easily. And then I went off to college and I was assaulted there. And then I got into a violent relationship directly after that. And so it was just snowball, snowball, snowball until two years ago, a little over two years ago, when I finally left my ex and broke the cycle and have been working on my ish ever since. (laughs) Good for you. That's so commendable because I think there are so many people who have gone and could go down such a different path with the experiences you had. So I think that it is, yeah, so commendable that you were able to get yourself out of it. Thank you. I actually, I had a friend once, this will stick with me forever, I swear, who was like, you know, you had all the ingredients to become a habanero souffle, but instead you became this cupcake. (laughs) Oh my God. I want that on a t-shirt. Yeah. (laughs) On a mug. Yeah. You know, I could have gone either way and I chose (laughs) to become a cupcake. That's really amazing. So two years ago, I guess like what started shifting and happening that you started to piece together maybe some of the patterns and beliefs. Right. So I I got into, I've been in therapy on and off my whole life. Like I am a hardcore therapy advocate for myself. And the longest period that I ever went was towards the end of my very bad relationship in my twenties. When I finally got into therapy early 2020, before the shutdown, I, I went in because I thought I was like an addict. And I was like, I think I have a substance abuse problem. It's my therapist and I now laugh about this because we're like, <laughs> it was like, that was such a surface level. Like about a month after I started seeing them, just a couple of sessions, they were like, mm, I think your relationship might be abusive. Like, right. Yeah. I think there might be something else here. And that was 
so helpful because I had up until that point so many experiences of being told that I was wrong, that there was something wrong with me, that I, I mean, I went to a conference in 2018 and I got a toe reading, you know, like a palm reading, a toe reading. Yeah. But yeah. on your toe. Yeah, it was it was wild. I was such a non-believer beforehand. I was like, right, right. You know? yeah. yeah. And it was was it accurate or enlightening? It, it was so accurate. It was bizarre how much this person could tell me about my life based on the shape of my toes. I was like, I'm a firm believer, but the first thing that they said, which just I broke down crying, was, Do you know that you're good? I was like, what? <laughs> like, Oof. like, no, no, I did not know that I was good. And even then I was like, mm, mm. and but that was all they said. Like, there was no like, here, I'm going to give you this explanation and try to convince you. It was just a straight shot question. And my inner kiddos had to be like, mm, this is scary, you know, <laughs> but maybe, maybe possibly yeah. I could consider that one day, you know. And so when I was in this relationship, I firmly believed that the like ups and downs, you know, the good and the bad was this, you know, it's like, oh, he just has anger problems, you know, <laughs> like, mm. you know, and, and all the things that you hear people say that it, I said them, I thought them. And I also just believed that I was lucky enough to be in a relationship, period, like someone right. liked me, you know? Yeah. And so this therapist really helped me so much. So, I mean, I, I do not exaggerate when I say that they saved my life because that was the last time that I was in a psych ward was because they committed me and I've been in seven psych wards in my life. <laughs> wow. And after that, I, I spent nine days in the psych ward and then two weeks staying with a friend after that. So I had a full little over three weeks away from my ex. And while I was in the psych ward, it was a protected unit and they were like, no one can call you without your consent. And so I was completely detached for three weeks. And that was the start of my, my brain being like, hey, like we're not going to survive <laughs> if we don't leave. Like, period. Yeah. I had been strangled and my therapist came back and was like, this is a precursor to someone killing you. And yeah. so I had to make a choice. That's powerful. Is that therapy when you started to sort of piece together that maybe the trajectory of your life was set based on the trauma that happened within your family before you even came on to this earth? It started there because... So I, I had the experience of being in the psych ward and staying with a friend and I didn't leave for another six months. And when I left wow. six months later, that was my fifth attempt to leave. And I literally like packed my entire life up, a three bedroom apartment in a matter of four hours on a Saturday and got out and he ended up taking my dog, which really oh. was hard. <laughs> Um, yeah. But I went and stayed with my best friend in West Virginia. And when I say remote, I mean, I did not realize how spoiled I was living in this city because yeah. Chinese food was like an hour away. An hour Oh, my away. God. Yeah. And so I was in the nature every single day and I was meditating every day and I was away from everything. And I, I had things to catch up on financially after everything I'd been through, but I didn't have like a monthly rent payment. I didn't have mm. utilities. So I had this period of like pause and I couldn't go anywhere. All I could do was walk my dog for hours at a time and yeah. out in nature. And that was when it started to click together of like, you know, I have already been at a point in my life for a long time where I recognized that my parents did the best they could. But at that point it was like, but their best was influenced by what they went through, you know? Yeah. And, and like my mom became the mom that she did because of the mom she had. And she became the mom she did because of the mom she had. You yeah. know, and I started looking and, you know, even today I called my grandmother right before this session because I was like, I just need to 
pin down a few facts <laughs> to make sure I have the timeline right in confirming, you know, that like my great great grandparents were in an arranged marriage and like, wow, yeah, and they came from Czechoslovakia at that point. And so like my great grandmother was first generation American. So we've only been here a couple generations. And my grandma was like, oh, yeah, my my dad was like a real hothead. And I was like, what do you mean? You know, and she started talking about his like violent outbursts and how her mom became very repressed. And my grandmother like is she doesn't speak up on a lot of things. And I'm just like watching, you know, you can like see it in your head. That's like yeah. layer after layer after layer. It goes so far back to like the experiences that the people in Czechoslovakia had, mm-hmm. you know, and how what they brought when they immigrated and then how they raised their family and then, you know, all the way down to you. Mm-hmm. Do you still have a relationship with your family, like your parents? You said your grandma. I have a relationship with my family that's very, I would say, contained. And so it's, you know, I'm very much a black sheep. Like I don't, we don't think the same way. We don't do the same things. We don't even eat the same things. Like I have food allergies and I go home and I'm, and they're getting better, much better at this now, but they used to say like, don't be dramatic. Like, I'll just, oh my God, that's going to poison me. Like that's dramatic, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I mean, and I try to assign, like, they just don't know, like for them that it's very hard to do the things outside of the norm. And I, hold out hope that like one day maybe we can have conversations about the things that happened to me as a kid but I've prefaced to them like look I I am on trajectory one day I'm going to talk to Oprah like I I want to help millions of people with what I do and so I'm not going to not be me or not tell the truth in order to do that and if that means that they cut me out which would not be the first or second or third time that they did it then that is their choice. (laughs) Are you comfortable talking a bit about being kicked out at 13? Absolutely. So when I was 13, I came home from school and all of my stuff was in trash bags on the front porch and the house was locked. And when I, you know, banged on the door, my mom was like, no, I kicked you out. Like, (laughs) you're done. I disown you. We're not, you're not staying here anymore. (laughs) And my best friend came and picked me up. Her mom came and picked me up and I stayed with them for about a month. And then the guidance counselor found out and said that I couldn't do that. Instead, I had to stay in a shelter which like as an adult, I look back, right? This I'm making the same face. I was like, like <laughs> that doesn't totally that's... make sense. <laughs> you know, because both parents knew, you know, the, her parents knew and my parents knew. It's not like they had, uh, you know, kidnapped me or that I had like yeah. stored away in their basement or something, you know? And so I had to go live in a shelter, which was two towns away. And the way that it worked at the time was that if you were already enrolled in a high school, when you came to the shelter that you would still go to that high school. And so I would get up. I I was one of very few white girls in the shelter and I would get bullied. And so they, and by that I would get like ice bath, bath wake ups at like four in the morning. Oh and so, my God. yeah, so I started getting up early. Like I was like, I will beat this. Like I woke up at 3 a.m. I would take the two buses into uh, two different cities just to get to mine. And then the bus dropped off about a mile from school. And so like when people are like, oh, I walked a mile to school both ways. And I was like, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Real. Plus a bus, plus another bus, plus. <laughs> and, and it would take so long. I mean, I would leave between four and five in the morning and I would miss my first period 730 class. I wouldn't get to school until almost nine. Um, and then I would leave coming home and same, same thing. I would get home like right after get home to the shelter yeah. after dinner and I have to like do my homework and, and go back to school. 
And at the time, because I was, you know, trying to avoid these bullies, I would end up sleeping on like the park bench outside, or, you know, I would go into the gas station. And like, if I missed dinner, I'd be like drinking water and trying to pretend it was French fries. <laughs> like, I really was like, I didn't know anything other than the next step, the next step, the next step to stay alive. And so that was really the start of it. I met my pimp <laughs> while I was living there. And I started serving clients as a teenager so that I could have lunch money and bus money. And they provided bus money. But if you missed a bus, you had no way to like make that up. I would just be stranded. This is before cell phones. I didn't have uh, a cell phone of my own at that point to be able to call the shelter yeah. and be like, I'm stuck. And so I did everything that I could to make sure that I survived. Part of that was the initial change for me in the sense that it was like, if I can teach myself algebra on the bus and like, you know, make money at this age and like find my own way on my own, like what else can I do? That was just a, a little seed. Like I, I recognized it at the time, but it wasn't enough that I could like step back and take action from that place. You know, it yeah, was you're just a kid. Right. Well, and, and I was just like, ha, huh. like you thought you could kick me out and I would just disappear and I survived. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And was there any repercussions for your parents? I mean, not that I know of. Yeah. Yeah. I just think, yeah, I can't. I have a 12-year-old stepdaughter and she is like sass extreme and I love it. But I can't imagine what she would do that would result in me kicking her out or her parents. And so, and she's also so naive and young, like 12, 13. Right. It's so, what a scary time and again of course you like got sex trafficked you know because you were ripe for the picking I think with you know with your circumstances up until then right and at the time honestly I thought I, I was like I'm lucky I'm so lucky right that I found this guy you know because I mean I would go to brothels like I I wasn't a brothel worker but I would go there and I would perform there occasionally and I would see these girls who were there and I was like oh well I mean and they were mad at me too because I had it better because I had someone who was going to take me to school after you know who was going to wow. have to take the bus and right. so, like that just was I mean up until really only like a year ago did I start saying I was sex trafficked I was like I was a teenage sex worker I was like no this <gasps> happened to me I didn't do it. Yeah. I didn't use it, you know? So it's been a lot of a lot of looking at all of that. I don't have any doubt in my mind that my mom thought when she kicked me out, like that that is where I would end up and that she would be okay with that. I didn't think that. I thought that she I know at the time, like in, in my head, I had just thought she just didn't care, you know? She didn't care mm -hmm. what happened. And then when I was sixteen, I had been back home at that point and she found out I was self harming. And she put me in a psych ward. She literally found out on a Thursday and then Sunday night had me committed. And I really railed against that. That was the probably the hardest blow, even harder than being kicked out, just in the sense because like I would be in the psych ward and I would be crying and I would be thinking I want my mom. And then I'd have mm. to remember like she put me here. That was really damaging. And the first kind of hint I had was really uh, in terms of generational trauma was really that moment because later I ended up this is totally wild. I ended up on an app that I had never used and have never used since <laughs> on a conversation with two people. The app was called Quilt. It was a lot like Clubhouse, but just for oh, okay. more sensitive issues. And two women I've never talked to since. And I ended up talking to them because one of them was like, I just found out my daughter is self-harming and I want to commit her. That was like the opening. And we ended up talking and it was like, 
so healing for me as an adult to hear a mother talk about how scary it was for her to find out that her daughter was hurting herself, you know? And it was this flash of like, I, of course, wish my parents had done better and had done things differently and also can recognize how that scary that must have been. And then I was in therapy with my mom for a lot of years. And one therapist at one point said to my mom, which we didn't go back after this, and I can see why now, (laughs) but she was like, you know, your best friend and your dad died in the same year when you were 14. And it seems like there might be certain parts of your personality that are locked in that age. And it was like, well, how powerful, of course, if like she's stuck at 14 and I'm 12, 13, like we're going to be butting heads worse than it with healthy coping mechanisms could. And I've thought about that a lot since, like, you know, she went through all of that. My grandmother was an alcoholic when she was a child. And then, you know, her parents were, were both addicts and my, both my biological parents were addicts. Like it, it all just keeps cycling until someone is like, I'm going to put a spoke in this wheel and I'm going to stop it. And I'm going to, you know, take whatever I can off of my future generation's plate. Oh, that like gave me goosebumps. (laughs) What a powerful thing to recognize in the adults who were supposed to know better and do better. There was a piece of her that wasn't an adult at a 14 year old shouldn't be raising a baby or raising a child. And yeah, of course. Right. Well, it helps me so much now too, because I have a niece who is like, my world she is just every time she's here she is like the best my and my favorite human <laughs> and she is so much like me she's a very sensitive person and I do things very differently than than my family does and so when she's here we do things like when she's eating she'll say like my tummy tells me I'm full I'm like okay and then she'll come back a few minutes later and be like my tummy says it's hungry again she's like testing it you know yeah like, yeah body autonomy your tummy knows best and it's so different for her and it's also really healing for me because i will have a moment where i'm triggered where i feel myself about to say something that my mom would say or i, I have said it i'm not yeah perfect. and i'm able to be like you know what i'm really i was really angry and one time she even she was like i'm sorry she calls me tia she goes i'm sorry tia that i made you angry And I was like, oh, no, honey, like my emotions are my emotions. I felt angry. I wasn't happy with how you acted, but it wasn't a reflection on who you are. We talk about the behavior and it just is healing for me to have these moments where I'm like, oh, like my parents didn't have this. You know, they they didn't get trained on these kind of things. And I freaking make TikToks about them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How old is your niece? She just turned eight. I mean, she looks just like me too. And so like when we're out and about, it's so cute because people will be like, oh, you're a daughter. And like, we'll say something. And then she'll, after they leave, she'll go, Tia, they thought I was your daughter. I'm like, I know, sweetheart. (laughs) (laughs) That's really cute. Yeah. And do her parents, are you close with them? Mm -mm. And do you talk about generational trauma? Oh, no. No, my... So I have a very unusual set of siblings and what i mean by that is like if you go by full blood i'm an only child if you go by who i grew up with i grew up with two half brothers and two step siblings and then when i was 13 and i was living in the shelter my mom called me and told me to go live with my dad which was how i found out i was adopted and so then i found out i had three other half siblings by the time i was 13 i had eight but i didn't start with eight and then my right. biological dad remarried as we were uh, after we became adults. And I was like, does it count? Like, do you still count the step siblings if they get added after everyone is an adult? Like, 
not yeah, sure. that's true. My mom's remarried, and I'm always like, my de- my mom's husband's kid. And they're like, isn't that your stepsister? And I'm like, maybe. <laughs> I didn't grow up with them, though. Right. Well, and that's why I'm like, I have 8 to 11 siblings. Just <laughs> <laughs> depending on how you configure it. Right. And so I, I grew up in house with my two brothers and I had my two step siblings who lived otherwise until I was 13. And my mom went through some mental health issues when I was a kid and I took care of my youngest brother a lot up until I went to college when he was six. I won't speak to their stories, but they have their own sets of trauma separate from mine. And because of that, and I think partly, you know, there is that gender piece of it too. They don't really talk about mental health issues and they both still live with my parents. And so they're very, right. And and they're 30 and 22. And so they're 30 with three kids and (laughs) 22 and they still all live in my parents' house, you know? And so it's, it's hard to be able to do a lot of self-reflection when you're still living with the people that you maybe might not have as many nice thoughts as you think you do (laughs) if you face them. And I wonder, like, you shouldn't have been kicked out at 13, but what did that space get you, that space to breathe and kind of see the world? And again, like, what happened shouldn't have, but there's a piece of it that you were removed. Same with being in the hospital, separated from your ex, where you got that clarity or just that space to look at it differently. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was also the only one that went to college, and that's a, a whole host of you know, living away from your parents. And also, I mean, I, I paid for college being completely independent, but also still having a developing brain. And it was so weird to me when I met my freshman roommate, I was 17. And, and she was like, you know, yeah, we're going to be living on our own. And I was like, I've been on my own for five years. <laughs> like, Yeah, like no biggie. You know, I mean, not entirely for those five years, but off and on. Even recently, one of my friends sent me a picture of her daughter, who's 12. And I was like, oh, she, like in my head, I was like, oh, she's almost an adult. Like, no, she's not. Like, I, no. I was an adult at that point, and that's why, like, it's so hard for me to reconcile. I definitely yeah. think having the distance. I've only lived at home for an entire year for two years out of the last like 17 years, and so I've been a far away um, in my own my own life since then. And what was it like finding out that you had a different biological father than you thought? And then did you go live with him? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did. Just this strange guy like that you didn't know about. Yep. Well, I so the weird thing was I always knew his mother. Like I grew up with three grandmothers. Never questioned it, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when you're a kid, you just think, oh, this is normal. Right. Well, and it further was complicated because my neighbor, who to this day we still call Nana, is just a straight up neighbor and I met her when I was seven. So I, I was like, oh, I have four grandmothers. And so I was like, I don't know which of the three are not related. Right. <laughs> like, I just never and so I used to go visit her in Arizona. And so the the kind of segue, when I found out at the shelter, like I, I can remember so much about that exact moment and where I was sitting and what was going on. And it, it wasn't at the same time, but it felt exactly like, you know, there's no Santa. I was like, hey, right. here's your illusion of your family. Just kidding. And so I latched onto that so quickly thinking maybe he will love me. Maybe his wife will love me. Like, cause my mom's already disowned me. 
that kick out was not the first event by any any means. Like I had already been seen by Child Protective Services and my guidance counselor, and I had been abused for almost 10 years at that point. Yeah. And so that was just kind of the tipping point of going somewhere else. I went and lived with my biological dad and his wife and three new siblings. And it was very interesting, that dynamic of shiny new humans and, hey, I'm, I'm their extra like nibbling. Um, yeah. And it didn't last very long, in part because there were their own mental health issues going on in that house and the, in the parents. And, you know, I, I mean, frankly, I was a smart ass. Like, I had such a sharp tongue because that, that was my biggest weapon. Yeah. I was being physically hurt by people. And so all I could do was like lash out. And then living there, my what would be my stepmother, I guess, had an eating disorder. And I started learning like how to control myself in that way. And I had already been self-harming at that point. And, and it just, it did, there was no way. It was a recipe for disaster. And so at one point, my dad got really frustrated and slapped me. And that scared him, I know. And that's when he sent me to live in Arizona with my grandmother. And then I came home for a little while. And then I went and lived with another grandmother for a little while. And then I got kicked out again and went back to the shelter. So it just was a lot of chaos for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good word, chaos. Mm -hmm. Through it all, it sounds like you came out of it, maybe not unscathed, but through it all, like you really could have gone down a completely different path and ended up. I mean, dead, but so many things. Right. I mean, this year when I celebrated the two year anniversary of leaving, I was like, I truly, until I was in my 30s, did not believe that I would ever reach this age. It, it was not wow. even, there was no question. I was like, yeah, you know, and part of it was things that were happening to me, dangerous situ situations that I'd been put in. And part of it was I, because I believed I was bad, because I believed that like, m like essentially every part of me was for using, you know, like if I could make people laugh, that's why I was there. If I connected people as friends, that's why I was there. If someone used my body, that's why I was there. Like I had no right to be angry about any of those things because that was the only reason I was here. And so there were so many situations where I could have taken different actions, but I had no regard for my life at all. And so it was like, if I end up dead, so what? <laughs> like that yeah. is expected, you know? Yeah. What was the turning point of, was it college that kind of got you on this path of entrepreneurship and where you are today in terms of like professionally? Mm. So there were two distinct turning points. One was emotional and then one was professional. And so when I was 20, I overdosed in a suicide attempt and ended up in the psych ward. That was stay number six. And that was a month long. And for the first week, I really was completely shut down. I was like, look, I'll, I know I just have to say the right things and you're going to let me go. You know, I'm like, this is not my first rodeo of having been in a psych ward. And I had this doctor who outright was like, I'm not gonna assign any medications to you. I'm not gonna prescribe anything until you tell me like why you ended up here. And eventually I was like, well, you know, six months ago I was assaulted and my friends didn't believe me. And because I had been through this and this and I just started rattling things off thinking like it's no big deal, right? 
And part of it too was in, when I was in my first psych ward stay, the doctors talked to my parents and they never talked to me. And they diagnosed me as bipolar and borderline, which I now know oh. like you can't do that before you're 18. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was 16. And so it was based on observations outside of me. So when I got to this hospital, I was like, I'm not going to take medicine for bipolar. Like, I don't think that's who I am. So that was part of why I was so adamant about like, just say the right thing and get out of there. And I just started rattling off all the things I'd been through. And finally, the doctor was like, I don't think you're bipolar. I don't think you have borderline. I think that you have PTSD, CPTSD, depression, anxiety. I think that all of these are symptoms of trauma. And it suddenly it was like, what? <laughs> like, you're telling me that the things that happened to me, like, are causing me to not feel good? <laughs> that was revolutionary. It wasn't yeah. to say that there was no imbalance or that I didn't need to take something or anything like that, but I just thought I was just inherently broken and, and bad. And so he taught me, he actually didn't prescribe anything anyway. He taught me how to meditate. And like, again, I'm like, how lucky, how lucky, because I know many people who have been in psych wards and they're not taught things like that. You know, this like, mindfulness regimen and a week into meditating like literally on the seventh day like, okay, universe like subtle signs i had this moment where i i hit my 15 minute quota which is what i had to do every day and i realized like i i hit it without opening my eyes and asking about it like i had actually stopped and like been like oh and i also felt like i had a moment where i was almost outside of my body and i was at peace and it was the first time I ever experienced that, ever. And I was like, if this is possible, like what else is possible? And then professionally, I worked at a bank originally. It's funny, I was, I was an administrative assistant, but looking back, it's, it was much bigger than that. Everyone who was an assistant on my floor, we worked in the investments department, they served one or two people and I served 12. And my brain is just like so oriented to organization and like, like painfully so I'm neurospicy. And so like, if something isn't working, it's like a record player. I'm like, like I have a Sheldon moment where I'm like, mm -mm, yeah, is, mm -mm, no, yeah, <laughs> like I get twitchy. I'm even just itching myself thinking about it right now. <laughs> and so I immediately was like, okay, like let's organize. And I started organizing their files, organizing their ordering system. I was organizing donation drives, like anything that they needed, I would do it. And if I had to learn like a system, most people in the department would like have one person show them and I would like send a mass email out and go meet with like seven different departments <laughs> to learn. And so it became really clear that I could do a lot more than, you know, file stuff and, and, and yeah. calls. And I went to a professional organization's luncheon and my mentor at the time paid for my first year of membership. And I thought, like, first of all, what am I going to do? I'm an administrative assistant. Like, these people are, like, business owners and lawyers and, you know, accountants. <laughs> like, they have real jobs. And at my membership welcome luncheon, I met with a woman who, it was, I was planning a Christmas party for my department. And she was an entrepreneur. And she's like, yeah, this is my first year planning a Christmas party that I have enough employees. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, what are you, what are you doing? And she goes, we're going to a spa. <laughs> and I was like, really? I was like, can I work for you? You know, because I'm like, I've been in corporate. Yeah, like that sounds lovely. <laughs> right? Like in corporate, they're excited that I order Greek instead of pizza for lunch. Like, yeah. <laughs> and she's like, well, I do need some part-time work and I could do it remote. And so like, I, again, I don't know what is about Thursdays, but Thursday I met her. Friday, I sent her my resume. By Sunday, I was working for her. And six months later, she asked me to come on and be her chief operating officer so I could help her move her business from her basement to a warehouse. 
And while I was working there, she was so immersed in personal development. And it was the first time I had been reading personal development books, but I was like hiding them behind my scholarly journals. Like I was so ashamed. Yeah. (laughs) And she was so open about it. Like she would read a book and then she would bring it to me and be like, you know, let's implement it. Like, do you want to borrow it? And I could go home and read. And, and it just was so encouraged this learning mindset. And I realized like, this is what it means to be in control of your life, in control of your time, in control of your knowledge. Like all of that. And I, and I got bit by the bug. <laughs> like you cannot go back once you, once you have realized what is possible when you're not in the constraints of someone else's time. And it feels like that was kind of your theme growing up is you were either, it's like you were always within the constraints of your circumstance. So either your parents or the psych ward or the shelter or the pimp and what freedom it must feel now to have the ability to control all of it on your own. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking the other day, you know, I I identify as non-binary and I was like, you know, I think I identify my life as (laughs) non-binary. That's perfect. Right. And I never thought about it before is like, you know, in every situation, like whether it was a healthy coping mechanism or not, I was always looking for this method of being in control of my own life. And so now it's like even I started with a new client about a month ago and we kind of went back and forth on whether we were going to use the word employee or, or independent contractor. And I was like, no, let's let's just stay where, where I want to be, which is in control. That's incredible. And so when did you start coaching people with meditation and clarity and like, how do you go from working for this person to being an entrepreneur of your own? Well, so right before I got laid off from her and while right before that happened, I had started an online program, my first online course, which was how to run an online business. And in the process of taking that course, my mentor took the same course. And so we were kind of cheering each other on. And and my mentor at the time was in her 50s. And so she had already been in her industry for decades. Like she had been working longer than I had even been alive. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was helpful in a sense to have someone who was so confident in what they know to be working on their business where I was just kind of like, I don't know what I'm building, but I'm building something. I ended up working for a well-known life coach and business coach who has an international audience. And while I was working for her, I started taking on clients as a virtual assistant because I was like, I'm just going to make a little extra money doing the things I already know how to do. And the beautiful thing about working for her too, was that her team was just phenomenal. I went through two months of customer service training of like how to take wow. care of people virtually, how to create community online, how to write emails, how even when people are, you're like, you know, hey, you didn't make your payment, you know, or I mean, we, yeah. because she had an international audience, we would get so many difficult emails. Like people would write in about being on suicide watch. They would write about being in the middle of a war zone. You know, this was during 2020 as well that I worked for her. And so people were writing in about their COVID stories and wow. it was a lot and emotional to handle. And so while I was taking on my own clients and doing this work, one of the people that I started doing some social media work for was teaching about trauma and how it shows up in entrepreneurship. And that was really a key for me of like, okay, I can start to see how I'm making my business abusive, like how I'm making my own work into the people who have hurt me because that's what I know. And so I started learning about regulating my nervous system and how to do that in my business. And one of my other VA clients, I was just doing spreadsheets for him and he would bring me like a flash drive of spreadsheet work and we would have lunch. 
And about two months into working for him, he said, look, I want you to keep doing my VA work, but you're not a virtual assistant. I was like, what? You know, and of course, like with my background, my brain immediately was like, you know, oh, I, I failed in some way. And he's like, you're a coach. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, mm, are you sure? Um, yeah. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, he's like every time that I sit down with you, you know, to talk about what's going on in my business, I get more out of our lunch than I get with most business meetings that I'm having because I think differently and I ask a lot of questions just coming from ignorance and like I've asked I've been a, a huge question asker my whole life and so I don't have any shame about it now <laughs> and some of it too is just because the more that I learn the more that I apply it to other things and so I just end up asking these questions that are much deeper than people are anticipating sometimes um, and that's how it started to turn I realized like I can help so many more people by letting them see the light inside themselves and helping them to get clear on their voice and what they want to do. And then I can do spreadsheets or anything like this. Yeah. And also spreadsheets. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do sometimes do that. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. So where do you see it taking you? Like, where does the next like chapter look like? My So my long-term goal is to create a life skills university and a life skills university that will have a central physical hub and hopefully will have multiple, what do they call them, like pilot locations or there's another one. Oh yeah, <laughs> not, like not campuses people. or yeah. Right, and to have a university that is all the skills that we don't learn and that we, we should. It's remarkable to me that so many people into their you know 30s and 40s and 50 and older much older will not know how to regulate their nervous system do not know anything about investments that do not know what it takes to grow a garden you know all of these kind of fundamental life skills that can really support you and instead everything for most people is trial by fire you know yeah and it's like can you imagine if you know by 25 by 28 by 30 when your brain is still developing some studies show until age 28, that you're able to learn what it means to talk, to have healthy communication, what it yes. means to have boundaries, you know, what it means when, you know, to, to recognize what depression looks like, what anxiety looks like. So you're not just going through these things and have, have no param uh, parameters for how to deal with them. I'm often surprised that just anybody can have a kid like who are, like, who am I to be responsible for being a player in actively raising the next generation like it's wild mm -hmm. to me because i think like what do i know what did my parents know nobody knows what they're doing we need a place where we can like learn the things that our families weren't capable of teaching us for one reason or another exactly or or that we learned the wrong way you know that we yeah the beliefs that we we took on and we don't even realize like so many times when i'm riding the bus i hear people say the common phrases of like you know money is the root of all evil right and i'm just like oh like i want to help you unlearn that i mean i can't help everyone at every moment but it's yeah. in those moments that I, i'm like man if i had my business card to say that we have these these online courses we have in-person courses i would love to help the world be able to see more clearly and communicate more clearly and take charge of their lives yeah, that's really incredible. And so what is the best place that people can find you? You mentioned TikTok. Where are you online so people can learn more about what you do? TikTok is definitely my number one content platform. And so that's Charlie underscore Timehacker. And then my website is www.timehackersunite.com. I love that. Are you on Instagram as well? I am. Yep. It'll be the same Charlie Timehacker. Nice. 
Oh, that's amazing. Did we cover everything? Is there anything missing from what we talked about? You know, I think the biggest thing that I would talk to people about when it comes to generational trauma is recognizing that trauma doesn't um, always have to be this big, you know, outburst of an event. You know, there's big T and little t trauma. And in little t trauma, it can be as simple as like your parents working multiple jobs and you not getting enough attention or in the queer community, like not being able to be authentic. Like they might say, I love you, but I don't like you right now. Like that is a form of trauma. And so just expanding your mind of like, what could they have been taught that would then trickle down? It doesn't have to be a huge thing. That's huge. I'm so thankful that we got to connect and hear your story and I will tag you and everything, but also put it in the show notes so people can easily click and find you. I will have to stay in touch. I'm going to look up your stuff because I definitely need some clarity in my life. (laughs) Great. Thank you so much for this space, darling. (laughs) Awesome. Well, have a great day and we will talk soon. Sounds good. Okay. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. I hope you found our conversation informative and entertaining. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to follow me on social media, share this podcast with your friends, and leave a review at ratethispodcast.com slash I did not sign up for this. Your support means the world to me. If you want more interviews, exclusive content, and ad-free episodes, join the Patreon at patreon.com slash I did not sign up for this. I hope you all have a fantastic week ahead and we'll talk soon. Hey there, welcome to 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap. I'm Lindsay and I'm joined by my co-host and real life partner, Carling. We're diving into the 90s hit drama through today's lens. Get ready for our off the cuff commentary and peeling back the layers of the Camden family. We'll tackle everything from family rules, life lessons and 90s fashion. Join us every week for a lighthearted queer perspective and a trip down memory lane. Whether you're a diehard fan or new to the show, this recap is for you. So find us anywhere you get your podcasts at 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap.